Book Six, Chapter Ten, of Henrietta Temple. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Henrietta Temple by Benjamin Disraeli, Book Six, Chapter Ten, in which Captain Armine increases his knowledge of the value of money, and also becomes aware of the advantage of an acquaintance who burns coals. Ferdinand returned to his hotel in no very good humor, revolving in his mind Miss Temple's advice about optimism. What could she mean? Was there really a conspiracy to make him marry his cousin? And was Miss Temple one of the conspirators? He could scarcely believe this and yet it was the most probable deduction from all that had been said and done. He had lived to witness such strange occurrences that no event ought now to astonish him, only to think that he had been sitting quietly in a drawing-room with Henrietta Temple, and she avowedly engaged to be married to another person, who was present, and that he, Ferdinand Armine, should be the selected companion of their morning ride, and he calmly invited to contribute to their daily amusement by his social presence. What next? If this were not an insult, a gross, flagrant, and unendurable outrage, he was totally at a loss to comprehend what was meant by offended pride. Optimism, indeed! he felt far more inclined to embrace the faith of the Manichee. And what a fool was he to have submitted to such a despicable, such a degrading situation! What infinite weakness not to be able to resist her influence! The influence of a woman who had betrayed him. Yes, betrayed him. He had for some period reconciled his mind to entertain the idea of Henrietta's treachery to him. Softened by time, atoned for by long-suffering, extenuated by the constant sincerity of his purpose, his original imprudence, to use his own phrase in describing his misconduct, had gradually ceased to figure as a valid and sufficient cause for her behavior to him. When he recollected how he had loved this woman, what he had sacrificed for her, and what misery he had in consequence entailed upon himself and all those dear to him, when he contrasted his present perilous situation with her triumphant prosperity, and remembered that while he had devoted himself to a love which proved false, she, who had deserted him, was by a caprice of fortune, absolutely rewarded for her fickleness. He was enraged, he was disgusted, he despised himself for having been her slave. He began even to hate her. Terrible moment when we first dare to view with feelings of repugnance the being that our soul has long idolized. It is the most awful of revelations. We start back in horror, as if in the act of profanation. Other annoyances, however, of a less ethereal character, awaited our hero on his return to his hotel. 
there he found a letter from his lawyer informing him that he could no longer parry the determination of one of captain armine's principal creditors to arrest him instantly for a considerable sum poor ferdinand mortified and harassed with his heart and spirit alike broken could scarcely refrain from a groan however some step must be taken he drove henrietta from his thoughts and endeavoured to rally some of his old energy revolved in his mind what desperate expedient yet remained his sleep was broken by dreams of bailiffs and a vague idea of henrietta temple triumphing in his misery but he rose early wrote a diplomatic note to his menacing creditor which he felt confident must gain him time and then making a careful toilet for when a man is going to try to borrow money it is wise to look prosperous he took his way to a quarter of the town where lived a gentleman with whose brother he had had some previous dealings at malta and whose acquaintance he had made in england in reference to them it was in that gloomy quarter called golden square the murky repose of which strikes so mysteriously on the senses after the first glittering bustle of the adjoining regent street that captain armine stopped before a noble yet now dingy mansion that in old and happier days might probably have been inhabited by his grandfather or some of his gay friends a brass plate on the door informed the world that here resided messrs morris and levinson following the not very ambitious calling of coal merchants but if all the pursuers of that somewhat humble trade could manage to deal in coals with the same dexterity as messrs morris and levinson what very great coal merchants they would be the ponderous portal obeyed the signal of the bell and apparently opened without any human means and captain armine proceeding down a dark yet capacious passage opened a door which invited him by an inscription on the ground glass that assured him he was entering the counting-house here several clerks ensconced within lofty walls of the darkest and dullest mahogany were busily employed yet one advanced to an aperture in this fortification and accepted the card which the visitor offered him the clerk surveyed the ticket with a peculiar glance and then begging the visitor to be seated disappeared he was not long absent but soon invited ferdinand to follow him captain armine was ushered up a noble staircase and into a saloon that once was splendid the ceiling was richly carved and there still might be detected the remains of its once gorgeous embellishment in the faint forms of faded deities and the traces of murky gilding the walls of this apartment were crowded with pictures arranged however with little regard to taste effect or style a sprawling copy of titian's venus flanked a somewhat prim pyrrhus by hoppner a landscape that smacked of gainsborough 
was the companion of a dauby moonlight that must have figured in the last exhibition, and insipid Roman matrons by Hamilton, and stiff English heroes by Northcote, contrasted with the vast quantity of second-rate delineations of the orgies of Dutch boors and portraits of favorite racers and fancy dogs. The room was crowded with ugly furniture of all kinds, very solid, and chiefly of mahogany, among which were not less than three escritoires, to say nothing of the huge horsehair sofas. A sideboard of Babylonian proportions was crowned by three massive and enormous silver salvers, and immense branch candlesticks of the same precious metal, and a china punch-bowl, which might have suited the dwarf in Brobegnag. The floor was covered with a faded turkey carpet. But amid all this solid splendor, there were certain intimations of feminine elegance in the veil of finely cut pink paper which covered the nakedness of the empty but brightly polished fireplace, and in the hand-screens which were profusely ornamented with ribbon of the same hue, and one of which afforded a most accurate, if not picturesque view of Margate, while the other glowed with the huge wreath of cabbage roses and jonquils. Ferdinand was not long alone, and Mr. Levinson, the proprietor of all this splendor, entered. He was a short, stout man, with a grave but handsome countenance, a little bald, but nevertheless with an elaborateness of raiment which might better have become a younger man. He wore a plum-colored frock-coat of the finest cloth. His green velvet waistcoat was guarded by a gold chain, which would have been the envy of a new town council. An immense opal gleamed on the breast of his embroidered shirt, and his fingers were covered with very fine rings. "'Your servant, Captain,' said Mr. Levinson, and he placed a chair for his guest. "'How are you, Levinson?' responded our hero, in an easy voice. "'Any news?' Mr. Levinson shrugged his shoulders, as he murmured, "'Times is very bad, Captain.' "'Oh, I dare say,' said Ferdinand. "'I wish they were as well with me as with you. "'By Jove, Levinson, you must be making an immense fortune.' Mr. Levinson shook his head, as he groaned out, I work hard, Captain, but times is terrible. Fiddle-dee-dee, come, I want you to assist me a little, old fellow. No humbug between us. Oh, groaned Mr. Levinson, you could not come at a worse time. I don't know what money is. Of course, however, the fact is, money I must have, and so, old fellow, we are old friends, and you must get it. What do you want, Captain? Slowly spoke Mr. Levinson, with an expression of misery. Oh, I want a rather tolerable sum, and that is the truth, but I only want it for a moment. It is not the time, tis the money, said Mr. Levinson. You know me and my partner, Captain, 
are always anxious to do what we can to sarve you. Well, now you could do me a real service, and, by Jove, you shall never repent it. To the point, I must have fifteen hundred pounds. One thousand five hundred pounds, exclaimed Mr. Levinson. Taint in the country. Humbug, it must be found. What is the use of all this stuff with me? I want fifteen hundred pounds, and you must give it me. I tell you what it is, Captain, said Mr. Levinson, leaning over the back of a chair and speaking with a callous composure. I tell you what it is. Me and my partner are very willing always to assist you, but we want to know when the marriage is to come off, and that's the truth. Damn the marriage, said Captain Armine, rather staggered. There it is, though, said Mr. Levinson very quietly. You know, Captain, there is the arrears on that there annuity three years next Michaelmas. I think it is Michaelmas. Let me see. So saying, Mr. Levinson opened an escritoire and brought forward an awful-looking volume, and, consulting the terrible index, turned to the fatal name of Armine. Yes, three years next Michaelmas, Captain. Well, you will be paid, said Ferdinand. We hope so, said Mr. Levinson, but it is a long figure. Well, but you get capital interest. Pish, said Mr. Levinson, ten per cent. Why, it is giving away the money. Why, that's the raw, Captain. With this year new bill, annuities is nothing. Me and my partner don't do no annuities now. It's giving money away, and all this here money locked up, and all to sarve you. Well, you will not help me, said Ferdinand, rising. Do you really want fifteen hundred? asked Mr. Levinson. By Jove, I do. Well, now, Captain, when is this marriage to come off? Have I not told you a thousand times, and Morris too, that my cousin is not to marry until one year has passed since my grandfather's death? It is barely a year, but of course at this moment, of all others, I cannot afford to be short. Very true, Captain, and we are the men to serve you if we could, but we cannot. Never was such times for money. There is no seeing it. However, we will do what we can. Things is going very bad at Malta, and that's the truth. There's that young. Catch him who can. We are in with him very deep. And now he has left the Fusiliers and got into Parliament, and don't care this for us. If he would only pay us, you should have the money. So help me, you should. But he won't pay you, said Ferdinand. What can you do? Why, I have a friend, said Mr. Levinson, who I know has got three hundred pound at his bankers, and he might lend it us, but we shall have to pay for it. I suppose so, said Ferdinand. Well, three hundred. 
"'I have not got a shilling myself,' said Mr. Levison. "'Young Touch-Me-Up has left us in the lurch yesterday for seven hundred and fifty pounds, so help me, and never gave us no notice. Now, you are a gentleman, Captain. You never pay, but you always give us notice. Ferdinand could not help smiling at Mr. Levinson's idea of a gentleman. Well, what else can you do? Why, there is two hundred coming in tomorrow, said Mr. Levinson. I can depend on that. Well, that is five. And you want fifteen hundred, said Mr. Levinson. Well, me and my partner always like to serve you, and it is very awkward, certainly, for you to want money at this moment. But if you want to buy jewels, I can get you any credit you like, you know. We will talk of that by and by, said Ferdinand. Fifteen hundred pound, ejaculated Mr. Levinson. Well, I suppose we must make it seven hundred pounds somehow or other, and you must take the rest in coals. Oh, by Jove, Levinson, that is too bad. I don't see no other way, said Mr. Levinson rather doggedly. But, damn it, my good fellow, my dear Levinson, what the deuce am I to do with eight hundred pounds worth of coals? Lord, my dear captain, eight hundred pounds worth of coals is a mere nothing. With your connection, you will get rid of them in a morning. All you have got to do, you know, is to give your friends an order on us, and we will let you have the cash at a little discount. Then you can let me have the cash now at a little discount, or even a great. I cannot get rid of eight hundred pounds worth of coals. Why, tain't four hundred children, Captain, rejoined Mr. Levinson. Three or four friends would do the thing. Why, Baron Squash takes ten thousand children of us every year. But he has such a knack. He gets the clubs to take them. Baron Squash, indeed. Do you know whom you are talking to, Mr. Levinson? Do you think that I am going to turn into a coal merchant? Your working partner, by Jove? No, sir, give me the seven hundred pounds without the coals, and charge what interest you please. We could not do it, Captain. Taint our way. I ask you once more, Mr. Levinson, will you let me have the money, or will you not? Now, Captain, don't be so high and mighty. Taint the way to do business. Me and my partner wish to serve you. We does indeed. And if a hundred pound would be any of use to you, you shall have it, on your acceptance, and we won't be curious about any name that draws. We won't, indeed. Well, Mr. Levinson, said Ferdinand, rising, I see we can do nothing today. The hundred pounds would be of no use to me. I will think over your proposition. Good morning to you. Ah, do, said Mr. Levinson, bowing and opening the door. Do, Captain. We wish to serve you. We does, indeed. 
see how we behave about that arrears. Think of the coals now, do. Now, for a bargain. Come, come, Captain. I dare say now you could get us the business of the Junior Service Club, and then you shall have the seven hundred on your acceptance for three months at two shillings in the pound. Come. End of Book Six, Chapter Ten.